Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and may you find peace and grace in all the words that are before you. Or write things three times to let the reader know to, t- to pay attention. 
And this is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be killed. But they still don't get it. They still can't grasp what Jesus is telling them because their mind of what the Messiah looks like is one of a strong leader and a future ruler who will be able to overthrow Rome or whatever oppressor is in charge of Israel and to create a space of peace and shalom for Israel that Israel deserved. And to be associated with the Messiah for these 12 disciples, this would come with huge honor. Everyone would be envious of them. They would have nothing to fear. Like they could be thinking, well, following Jesus shouldn't make us die because Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist died. He was killed because he wasn't the Messiah. But Jesus is the Messiah. We're good. They probably felt safe. They probably thought that since they were with God's chosen one, that they would be fine. Jesus has told them three times what his near future fate will look like, and they just cannot seem to get past their pride for even a minute. They know what to expect, so they can't actually move through that expectation. And after Jesus says these things, I am going to be tortured and killed, it says, Then the James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, wow. This whole passage is a type of foreshadow of what's to come in Jerusalem. If you think about it, James and John's request to sit at the right and the left sides of Jesus when Jesus is finally exalted up as King and Messiah, well, Jesus does have someone on his left and someone on his right side when he's lifted up on the cross. Instead of brothers seeking glory, there are two common criminals lifted up next to Jesus, and the one whose heart was humble and open to Jesus Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. The way James and John ask Jesus is like they're trying to set him up because they know that he'll say no. If you have kids, you know what this is like. A kid will come up to you and be like, mom and dad, I need you to do something for me and I just need you to say yes. And you're like, well, what is it? And in the back of your mind, you're like, no, absolutely not. They want to know that Jesus will say yes before they ask Jesus what he what they want. I mean, Jesus has just told everyone for the third time he's going to die. And he gets pulled aside by these brothers to ask him if they could get anything from him. It's like if your mother says, I am dying of cancer. I have such a short amount of time to be with you left on earth. And then you say, well, then who gets the house? It's that kind of insensitivity. And maybe James and John had such a close relationship with Jesus that they were just so comfortable being honest. Absolutely. They were so close to Christ. Or maybe these brothers had been talking on the side for a long time trying to figure out their rank with the Messiah and God's kingdom. And, and it has just been such a big part of their conversation for so long that they just abruptly told Jesus but didn't mean to be insensitive about it. Almost like, come into the conversation we've been having this whole time, Jesus. But they are proud. 
you can get that sense of pride over their hearts, almost like an encasing of their hearts, because they believe that they are deserving. And they think they understand what sitting at the right side or the left side of Jesus would mean for them. It doesn't matter that Jesus just told them about his bleak fate. They wanted what they believed was best for them. And the response Jesus gives these two brothers isn't name-calling. It isn't shouting about how mean and insensitive they are. He doesn't even make a spectacle of them in any way. He simply and gently says that they don't know what they're asking. And then Jesus asks them, if they really could follow him, if they really could drink the cup, which the cup was a familiar metaphor. It was used many times in the Old Testament and then into, into just life around. It meant the highs and lows of life once experiences. Could you take on the same experiences, the same joys and concerns that my life will bring? And then the metaphor that Jesus uses of the baptism isn't the baptism that we see here. It's not welcoming somebody into God's family with cheers and shouts and claps and hallelujahs. It wasn't even John the Baptist's baptism either. This baptism that Jesus says here is it means the full submersion into affliction and peril without the certainty of joy on the other side. The full immersion, submersion into affliction and peril without the certainty of joy on the other side. And pridefully, these brothers are like, yeah, we totally can do the same things you're going to do. And Jesus affirms this. He says, yeah, you will drink from this cup. You will be baptized in this baptism. In Acts 12, we read of King Herod imprisoning James and then murdering James because of his dedication to Christ and his fervor to spread the gospel. Jesus warned his disciples then, and he, and he warns us today, us disciples today, that following Jesus will lead to places where those in power want Jesus to be stopped. And the good news of God's love through Jesus isn't always good news to the powerful and to the wealthy. Last week we read about that rich man who, who left Jesus sad. Jesus said, you need to sell everything and come follow me. And he left him sad because he couldn't give up his wealth and his power and his influence. Some people get sad about not being able to participate in God's kingdom. But other people have a different response where they get angry and vindictive and vicious and violent when told that their power might be actually corrupting them. King Herod had heard that truth, and he needed that truth to stop, so he silenced it with James. And then the, uh, Acts 12 goes on, and we see Peter in that same boat, and King Herod wanting to kill Peter, and Peter's able to escape through the Lord's guidance. But still, that sense of stopping the voice of truth, no matter the cost, even in death. Man, can you imagine how devastating that would have been to hear for those early church disciples? To hear that they're, that one of their very best friends, that, that their very beloved disciple who walked with Christ had been murdered because of the gospel. And John, man, he would have been gutted by the news of his older brother's death. 
James didn't end up in the type of glory and power he once imagined for himself, but he lived a life in where the Lord met him on the other side and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. James didn't get riches and palaces and his name on his office door. His devotion to Christ led him to his death, and he believed it was totally worth it. Paul once wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And John, John who expected to sit in this place of esteem and glory, who counted his lucky stars to be such close friends with the Messiah, who didn't understand what following Jesus would truly cost him when he asked to sit next to Jesus' side. John is the only male disciple who we know of who was near the cross when Jesus was crucified. We know this because when Jesus was dying on the cross, in an agonized voice, he looked at his mother, Mary, and he said, Here is your son. And then he looked to John and he said, Here is your mother. Showing that the family of God is not through blood, but through commitment, through covenant, through loyalty to each other and to God. And then John continues forth in his life and he spreads the gospel, he spreads the good news after Jesus' death and resurrection. He joins with Peter and the other disciples. They, they spend most of their time in Jerusalem setting up churches and inviting new believers into this family community. He writes the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. He writes one 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the Bible as well, and he writes the book of Revelation. Perhaps James and John didn't quite get what God was doing through Jesus, their Messiah, at that time that they asked to sit at his left and his right sides. And this wasn't just James and John's desire, because the other disciples, the text says, was annoyed that they didn't think about asking Jesus first for the same thing. The desire for recognition, power, and glory is a human problem, not a James and John problem. This struggle for most of us where pride becomes our master and recognition becomes our guide. And I think Jesus is always trying to redirect us as his disciples. Jesus gently and patiently points out our pride and our desire for glory, and helps us get redirected to that place of humility and gratitude and servanthood. The disciples didn't get it then, but they did take on his calling after they began to understand. They didn't show up at the resurrection with the female disciples, but they certainly started showing up every day after that. And they began to understand that Jesus' prophetic truth that was spoken over them in this passage of scripture. Jesus says here, in verse 42, he called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Jesus says, you've seen models for leadership your whole life, where leaders and rulers take advantage of those beneath them, who manipulate others for their own benefits, who are selfish and self-centered, Jesus says, not so with you. 
He says, you, my disciples, are not like them. Your sense of self-worth doesn't come from another person's misery or another person's lack, but from the God who loves you. And from that foundation of love, my disciples, greatness looks like servanthood. Coming in first actually means coming in last. My kingdom, Jesus says, looks nothing like the kingdom of the world. Instead of taking, we give. Instead of exploiting, we set free. Instead of coming in first, we come in last. Instead of glory and honor, we serve and we care. Instead of privilege and power, we liberate and provide. And then Jesus ends this passage with a mic drop, where many theologians really truly believe that the entire Bible all of the gospel, everything in, the, in, in what God was doing, it like lands on this one verse we read today. And it's verse 45. It says, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom in Greek is litron, which means a divine release. This is a word that does something that you cannot do on your own. A ransom is often a price that is paid on the behalf of another person in need where they can't get out of whatever predicament they're in on their own. They need a third party to intercede on their behalf. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus interceded on our behalf. We were once destined for separation from God because of a belief that God was not good and that God isn't enough. And then Jesus did away with those lies when he went to the cross. His death was to show that God is good and that God is enough and that you are worthy of that cost. That you are everything that God ever wanted you to be. That you are beautifully and wonderfully made because God made you as such. That you are loved and worthy of love. And Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead was that divine release from the lies that tell you otherwise. That separation that happened in those moments is a separation of your true self that God created you as from the lies that the enemy tells you are true. And Jesus says, this is how the world works. This is how power speaks. This is how pride distorts and disvalues and harms those without power. Not so with you. Jesus said, this is what you've seen your whole life. You've been a student of power and privilege. You have been a disciple of what it looks like to seek for the top. This is the lens you've always looked through, this messianic expectation that came from years of learning about what it looks like to grab for power and honor and glory. That is the way the world has worked. And Jesus says, not so with you. You, my disciples, are not like that. Believe it to be true and begin to live like it's true. 
Every week when we gather, we go into our time of communion, and communion is the time that we are recognized, we get to recognize the servant love that Christ has for us. That Christ calls us to serve and not to be served. And so when we come up for communion today, the Bible asks us to be aware of what's going on in our hearts, to be aware of the areas that need to be confessed before the Lord, areas of pride and and certainty that distort the image of God that you see in other people. And so I want to ask, where is pride keeping you from stepping into servanthood? Maybe God is inviting you right now to serve the hungry in our social hall today. Maybe God is inviting you and putting somebody on your mind from this church that you are meant to wrap yourself around and care for and and, and be their family for them. Maybe you know a foster family nearby that could really use a meal once a week, and you say, every Thursday, I will bring you dinner for your family. I want to care for you in this way. I want to serve you as you serve others. I don't know what God is placing on your heart. I don't know where God is moving in that way, but I know that God is always calling us to serve others. And I know that God has placed that very specifically and uniquely where you are able to serve. And I think God is equipping you to do that. And in the places that you feel like you can't, you invite other people. You say, you know what? I just need your help. I need your prayers. I feel like I'm invited to serve this family or serve these people, and I just don't want to. But I know God's asking me to. Will you pray for me? Will you hold me in this? Will you move me to be brave into this? Communion is that continual reminder of the God who serves and invites us to live likewise. The bread represents Christ's body broken for us, and the juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all things that we've ever done to others or others have done to us. It is a setting free. It is a divine release. We'll give you a piece of bread, and you can dip it in the juice, And we just invite you to have a heart willing to receive the words of Christ back into your life, where the word is made flesh through you. We practice open communion. You can come forward with the ushers dismiss you. If you'd like to come and not receive the elements, you can cross your arms over your chest, and I will give you a blessing. And we'll sing together as we come forward as well. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us, for this abundance of love poured out. Lord, will you break our hearts so that love can pour back through there? Will you show us the ways that you are calling us to serve as you have first served us? May we receive you once again into our lives, and may we be transformed and changed by that love. We pray a blessing over this time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.